where can I get these shoes? Where can I get that shirt? Where can I get my nails done? Where can I get my feet done? Where can I find a doctor for this? Anything. Where can I buy a tiger that doesn't have stripes? Where can I buy a hammer that come with no humps? Where can I buy I've got a polar bear that's allergic to ice? Where, where can I buy anything that you can't get? Anything you think you can't get hold of? Ask me and I will somehow find it for you. Piece of cake. In episode two, we learned that for Bernie Katz, the Groucho was much more than a workplace. It was Bernie's life, perhaps even his home. But towards the end of his time there, the club just didn't seem the same. It was different. Not the magical place he joined all those years ago. It was a bit more corporate, a bit less fun, a bit less Bernie. In this episode, we examine just what happened when Bernie Katz was forced out of the Grouch Show. How his life unravelled so disastrously, so swiftly, after he left the club. Very soon, he managed to get on the wrong side of the wrong type of people, and that ended in his death. Founded in 1985 by Quaker chocolate heir Tony McIntosh, wine merchant John Armit, and architect Chike Chasse, among others, it was conceived primarily as a members club for literary types. Yet it had always had a showbiz pedigree. Among the many original investors were Paul Simon and the actress Judy Christie. The writer Leslie Ann Jones, who we've spoken to before in this series, was one of the founder members. I think it was 1986. I think the, the founder member period stretched from sometime in the middle of 85 through to about the end of 1986. So, yeah, I was there from the ground floor up. <laughs> I think, I mean, to remember back to those years, it's a bit like remembering the 60s, isn't it? If you can remember it, you weren't there. Um, okay, in the early days, I can remember spending the night there quite often. This was in the years before there were bedrooms. So you'd get so drunk in the bar that you'd end up just falling asleep in the chair or the sofa where you were sitting or under the chair or the sofa. And uh, the next morning, Somebody would bring you a toothbrush and a little disposable tube of toothpaste and you'd sort yourself out in the loose downstairs and then wander up to Topshop to buy a new shirt and go straight to work. You know, it was that place was our front room. It was very intimate in the early days. We knew absolutely everybody who was there. Everyone worked in the media. Not very many newspaper people, I have to say, back then. It was mainly theatre people, um, magazine publishing that kind of thing. It's the, the membership has broadened a lot in recent years and people seem to be able to buy memberships quite easily these days. Back in the day, you had to be proposed and seconded and they were of a mind to reject quite a lot of applications in those days. But I think nowadays money talks. In 2001, it was taken over by businessman Joel Cadbury and Rupert Murdoch's son-in-law, Matthew Freud. Freud fell out with Cadbury and withdrew a year later. 
By 2006, the club had passed into the hands of Graphite Capital, a private equity firm. They sold it in 2015 to another equity firm, Alcuin Capital Partners, whose portfolio also included the UK Krispy Kreme donut franchise and Cafe Nero, neither of which are particularly rock and roll. Hard to imagine the Gallagher brothers getting banjaxed on an overdose of Krispy Kreme donuts. Donuts are fucking overrated. I've never been a fan. Although the man that did put the jam inside the donut is a fucking genius. PR guru Mark Bukowski joined the club in the early 80s. Over the years, he saw it change. Through the YBA years in the 90s, and more recently, when it became much more corporate and less bohemian. No, there were, were sort of precursors in terms of the night, nightclub. The Tramp and the Browns that attracted the sort of after-hours crew into the depths of the night. They, they had really established that sort of mystique. When the Gratcher came along, it was, it was an old day thing and it had great restaurants and great food and great wine. And then it spilled out into the evening and many of those people then went on um, to, to, to Browns. And Browns was the place to be, you know, certainly any after show for any award ceremony to be at Browns. So there's a, there's a rich tradition of those. And then you had the Bohemian um, Colony Room. That's what Soho and Covent Garden was all about, really, I guess. So, the, 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 you know, as the competition grew um, and as licensing became tougher um, and as there was more money invested in these clubs, the risk, you know, was, was too high for them to, to, to carry on in, in many of the ways that existed and made it fun. But also attitudes changed, you know, um, particularly through, um, you know, through, through through HIV and um, much of the sort of casualties that were being taken, you know, um, because of those excesses, it just it became pretty sad. Um, the Groucho's um, seconds uh, wind came because of the 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 whole sort of uh, YBA mob, the young British artists, and particularly Damien Hirst and infamously Keith Allen. In 2016, some of the long-standing members wrote an open letter moaning about the corporate feel of the club, the profusion of laptops and what they called open drug use on the premises. But cocaine had long been a feature of an evening at the Grout Show, as various members have testified in print. The writer Toby Young was thrown out of the club in 2001 after he wrote about Keith Allen and Damien Hurst using cocaine on the premises. At the time, the club was owned by Freud and Cadbury. I'm not, of course, suggesting that they ever condoned drug use. In fact, anyone found with drugs would be reported to the police. Bernie was definitely part of that, and many members have told me that he was not just an enthusiast. He would often supply members with drugs, in particular cocaine. In his memoir, Bernie's friend Stephen Fry points out rather ruefully that today and for many years the Groucho Club has been clean as can be. The surfaces in the bathrooms are free of white powder. The circumstances of Bernie's departure have never properly been explained. It all seemed to happen in a cloud of smoke. Former members of staff have told me that Bernie left by mutual consent. Even Bernie himself, though, had recognised that he'd become unmanageable. 
But according to recruitment director Richie Foster-Thorne, he was still indispensable. I mean, let's be clear, he was an absolute liability. He was uh, totally inappropriate, wonderfully wild, forgetful, mm. not with the important things, but yeah. with the non, not quite so important things. He'd never forget people's names, for right, example. Yeah. But he would forget where he left his keys or yeah. if he'd put the shoes on, his shoes on the right feet in the morning. But all of that, it just made him more endearing. And I think, I don't think he cultivated the allegiance that was pledged to him. I think it happened naturally. Mm. People could see from the outside. When you've got people, serious heavyweights from the world of business, looking in from the outside and understand yeah. the value of somebody like that, yeah. to be treated as badly as he was by people who were junior to the person that makes the Do you see what I mean? Yeah, it didn't feature yeah. for them. It, they couldn't quite get their head around it. And I think with them, even Bernie, if you, he never really had off days, but those that knew him, you knew if he was a bit sad, Bernie, you're like, mm. oh, man, a bit of a mare, man. I won't bore you with it now. Yeah. You would collar him. Come, Bernie, you've helped me out for years. And people wanted to know what's mm. going on. Oh, it made me feel a bit uncomfortable about this and this. I'm not quite sure what to do. People couldn't fucking rally to be side quickly enough. Right, yeah. And now from the powers that be, now you've got a problem. Mm. You've got a bloody mutiny on your hands. You've got the staff that love Bernie. You've got every member. This is, your, this is the money coming in. All of a sudden, you, it doesn't matter whether you're good, bad or indifferent. You are the enemy. Over the years, some of his antics had certainly been entertaining. In reception, if a couple came in and Bernie fancied the man, he'd go over and just kiss him on the lips. He did this once to the former governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, back when Patton was chairman of the BBC. Bernie told Lavender, Chris Patton's Rodine-educated wife, she had a good one there, and when she'd finished with him, he should get in touch. Patton, to his credit, just laughed. As far as I know, Lord Patton never did get in touch, but I'm sure they'd have made a perfect couple. By the late noughties, there was no question that Bernie had become a star. But the Groucho was a small stage, and he had grown too big for his Cuban heels. Someone who worked with him at the club told me that in this period, he was proving to be unreliable, not turning up for work, just disappearing. Perhaps the demons that Stephen Fry had talked about were taking effect. In an attempt to motivate him, Bernie's salary was doubled to 60000 for a three-day week. That colleague, who insisted on anonymity, told me that he thought Bernie had been made to feel left out. He was always very good with members, the colleague told me. But, he explains, there were many different Bernies. There was a Bernie when he was with people. There was a Bernie when he was in a good mood. There was a Bernie when he was in a bad mood. There was a Bernie when he was hungover. And there was a Bernie when he was struggling with stuff. Film producer Damon Bryant. So, I mean, building up to his death, I mean, Groucho had a job for life, but his friends weren't there. So, I mean, the, 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 the ultimatum in the Groucho was one night I was there and someone asked him for a chair and it was a chair too far. And he literally picked his chair up and threw it across the room. And he's like, I'm fucking done. And they gave him six months of basketball. I mean, Bernie was naughty. I mean, the first... Bernie wasn't a manager, but he was a manager. The first night he's in charge, he walks out of the place, which has got a 20 million pound arm collection, and left it unlocked with all the fires on. I mean, it's only the grace of God that now walked in and did that. There was no filter with Bernie. For the majority of his time at the Grouch Show, he was very popular. 
He was a mascot. He was a talisman. When the Groucho was buzzing and everyone was there, it didn't matter what night of the week, Bernie would come in, slam the doors open and literally kick the door with his Cuban heels. There's Bernie, they'd all say. The members loved him. But with Mr. Katz, there was always a tendency to test managerial patience. Richie Foster Thorne and comedian Matt Richardson. I didn't have much money. I was, I was working in restaurants and I remember I bumped into him in Chinatown. I was walking down, you know, just, oh, just off Newport Court, whatever, and I was on the phone to my mum. I could see him sort of skulking towards me and he saw me and his head flipped back and his hair. It was all leopard print, everything, and bright, bright pink painting, cowboy boots or something. He's smoke, always smoking, and he can't be walking. I said, Mum, Mum, I've got to go, honestly. No, honestly, right now. And as I put the fan down, he went, Cole, kiss, kiss on the mouth, you're slack. And I said, Bernie, it hasn't happened in 10 years. It's not going to happen now. And he said, oh, um, what do you say? Can't, doesn't hurt to try that, does it? Like, <laughs> and he'd cackle. And, uh, and he said to me, um, and I always remember this, he said, um, you know, there's that sort of lull in the concert, just for a moment. He's like, I'll weigh you up and down, you'll go. He said, so, when are you going to be a member properly at the Grouchy Grouch? And I said, uh, well, I'd love to, Ben. I haven't got any money at the moment. And he went, rubbish. I'll get, you on, I'll get you on an industry rate. I said, really? Do you have one of those? He goes, yeah, we can do that. Tenner a month. What is that? £300 a year? Perfect. Yeah. And was, I stopped. I thought, £10 a month is not £300 a year yeah, yeah, by any yeah, stretch of the imagination. But that was yeah. his absolute, mm. yeah, £10 a month. What's that? And I was like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, Ben. I'll give you some thought. He was like, well, that, well don't, don't keep me waiting or something like that. And you'll pinch your bum and he's off. Yeah. Cloud of blue smoke, he disappears again. Um, one of the things that I really love Bernie for, like Bernie was always amazing at like kind of, you know, making sure everyone had a really lovely time and that, you know, he was always really good fun and really generous. There was a point where um, when I first moved to London, I couldn't find a good barber. So Bernie hooked me up with a barber and they would never charge me. They're like, Bernie's got this, don't worry. And for a while, like Bernie was sort of like my pimp for haircuts. It was suggested that Bernie had been using his position to his advantage. He wasn't engaged in criminal embezzlement, but I was told he was trying to make the most of the many opportunities that came his way. Certainly something soured his relationship with the Groucho bosses. He had a ready entree into the glossy world of showbiz and entertainment, and there were many ways in which he might profit from it. I was told the management were only willing to tolerate this so far, but although Bernie was throwing around memberships like complimentary twiglets, the pre-COVID snack at every table in the ground show, the man could get things done and quickly. Here's Bernie and Richie Foster Thorne. And you can ask me, where can I get these shoes? Where can I get that shirt? Where can I get my nails done? Where can I get my feet done? Where can I find a doctor for this? Anything. Where can I buy a tiger that doesn't have stripes? Where can I buy a hammer that come with no humps? Where can I buy... I've got a polar bear that's allergic to ice. Where, where can I buy anything that you can't get? Anything you think you can't get hold of, ask me and I will somehow find it for you. Piece of cake. I remember I was in there once with some friends of mine and he came up to me and he snapped his feet and he went, right, are any of you lot DJs? <laughs> I was laughed. I said, no, afraid not, but He looked at my mate, big black eyes. He said, are you a DJ? And he said, uh, no, I'm afraid not. And Bernie said to him, well, you're no fucking good to me then, are you? This guy was 6'5". Didn't know who Bernie was. He went, well, you're no fucking good to me then, are you? And he goes, well, I'll break it down simply. My DJ's let me down. I've got a big night tonight. If you can find me a DJ, you lot get memberships. Savvy? And we were like, I mean, that could work. Let me make a couple of calls. He went, well, go on in. <laughs> and yeah, lo and behold, we had some really well-known DJ who'd just arrived back from Paris Ooh. and was in a Ferrari and said, I mean, just for shits and giggles, yeah, I'll come and DJ at the Groucho. 
Richie, then working as a recruitment manager in the hospitality industry, placed staff at the Ivy Restaurant. And if you wanted to thrive in such a famous West End establishment, it meant a hell of a lot of calls to the Bernie hotline. By nature of his duties, he got to know a lot of people yeah. because he was referring guests on. Right, he'd, yeah. he'd always need a point of contact to be able to say when he was running the book, listen, we can't, we can't see these people for two hours. Do you mind inviting them in for a drink? And Bernie would be like, oh, who is it? Oh, it's who? So-and-so. Oh, right, yeah, that would be Justin Timberlake or something. Yeah, we'd love to have him. Get him down here. Your hotline was Bernie. Right, he so could take your guests. He could offer. He could, avoid, he could divert the paparazzi. Right. Like, you were each other's best friend. But, it was absolutely right and proper. If you'd had a guest that had kicked off or hadn't paid the bill or done something and he was leaving the Ivy, if you thought for one second he was heading in the direction of the Ivy, you'd call Bernie. You'd just let him grouch, you mean? Yeah, yeah. You'd yeah, call Bernie yeah. the grouch. Well, you wouldn't call the grouch. You'd be more Bernie, just let you know. Yeah. Listen, we've had a bit of an issue with this guy. I won't go into the details, but you might want to have a close look at him. Or something. Yeah, tonight. yeah. Thanks for the heads up. It's quite common in clubland and in hospitality generally to take advantage of various mutually beneficial arrangements. A fancy suit might be exchanged for a year's membership. For some lesser favours, a round of drinks. His art collection, given to him by the YBAs, was perhaps an extreme example of that blagging culture. But if these episodes have taught us nothing else, it's that Soho's affection for Bernie knew no bounds. Here's Mark Bukowski. And that's, what can, that's where Bernie's connection came into that art world, where he was very, very close to all those artists, particularly Damien, I mean, who, who held court there with the Blur guys and Keith. And I think that's where Bernie's real passion came through. I mean, he was a real lover and connoisseur of young artists, um, developing them. And of course, that was then his links went deep into the Soho society um, and um, the traditions of Soho, which we've touched on, that back in alien spirit goes right back to when it was at the height of the porn revolution in the 60s, you know, driven a lot by the Paul Raymond empire that, that touched all those different areas. And Soho is a village and was a village and is a village. Um, um, but the but that boom in young British artists just as they were exploding um, before Damien became big, and, and these were in you know they was a great company. These people they were amazing, fun and mavericks, and just didn't give a damn. There's a very good chance that the artist gave Bernie the artwork simply because he was a nice guy. Because Bernie was very famous at the Grout Show, he perhaps thought he should be famous outside of the Grout Show. Bernie saw himself as a natural television and radio presenter. So he went off to do those things, among them presenting a regular slot on Soho Radio, an online community radio station still going strong and now based on Broadwick Street in Soho. Bernie was not a natural, as we can tell from this clip of his 2014 interview with his friend, Stephen Fry. The pair have much in common, both Jewish, both gay. And what comes over is the genuine affection they feel for each other. But why did you decide, or what made you, what inspired you to call me the Prince of Solo? Um, you, you, you have the, the right welcoming nature to everybody who comes to a club that people wrongly think of as being an up itself, and it snobbish all, place. It? No, it's, not it's, it's a very welcoming club. Spit or, and sawdust, really. Also, it has on it 
works of art on the walls from Soho artists, artists who lived and worked in Soho, and you have been incredibly supportive of them and their work. Um, in the, I remember in the early days, in the nineties, I remember you know when Damien Hurst and Tracy Emin and Sarah Phillips and people, Angus, Sarah and all that Sarah Lucas, all those sorry, I meant Sarah Lucas, all those people were, were were making their names, and you were incredibly supportive of them. And there was a, I remember Steve Lazaridis gallery yeah. had, a, had a show. And, yeah. Your work. And work Robin Nick yeah. Carter as well. Robin yeah. Nick Carter. These lovely, marvelous yeah. artists. And Soho, let it not be forgotten, is not just a place for restaurants and gay, 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 gay. Yes, Angus, who sadly took his own life. And um, it's not just a place for gay trawling and uh, no. restaurant going. It is. It's bohemian. It's for artists and people who live loose and enjoyable lives. And, uh, and that's what you stand for. And that, you are the prince of that ideal. Thank you very much. That is a beautiful answer to that question, and I'm, I'm just going to cuddle you for <laughs> until tomorrow. But I, we, we we ain't got time. Fantastic. I love you. Always you know, a joy. I love you too. This and man. This man, ladies and gentlemen. This man. This mensch. This what a mensch. We're, about, we're a couple of mensches in sorrow. There you go. <laughs> right. See you later, darling. Okay, my baby. As Bernie spent less time in the club, he fell more and more out of love with it. When he resigned in March 2017, he received a severance payment. Manager Jeff Conan told me he saw Bernie on his last day. He said that he and Bernie parted on reasonable terms. Bernie told Jeff that he knew he was difficult to manage. And then he was just gone. That was the last time Jeff Conan saw Bernie, who had been a friend and colleague for more than 20 years. For so long, Bernie had brought a special energy to the Grouch Show. And when he left, he was given an awkward retirement party. Many of the regulars were baffled as much as crestfallen. Then, a few weeks later, the news of his sudden, unexplained death emerged. The Grouch Show put out a statement, but there were no details of how he met his end. As we've seen, he had many friends at the club, and they were horrified to hear the news. The strange thing, though, is that I'm not sure that many people really knew Bernie at all. Talking to Matt Richardson and Richard Bacon, Bernie's death certainly hit them hard. You know what? I always thought I knew Bernie, and I think in hindsight, many of us never really did. I didn't know anything about his personal problems. But with depression and things, like I think he's, he's one of those personalities that burns so bright, there must be something under the surface going on, as is often the case in those situations. So when I found out he'd killed himself, I was shocked, but not surprised at that outcome because it sort of made sense with the kind of personality that he was. But I didn't have any firsthand knowledge of anything that was going on. I think so much of his life was focused on other people having a good time that, you know, he didn't he didn't focus on himself as much. And none of us ever really thought about if Bernie's having a good time or not, because it was always about us having a good time. You know, he lived a selfless life in that sense. Uh, when he died and you know, seeing on Twitter messages that said things like, rest in peace, Bernie, and thinking, fucking hell, what's that? And they called him Mark Haynes. And I don't think he knew at that point. I think it might have been Leanna Bird, whose tweet I saw. So he sort of messaged her and said, what's going on? And she said, Bernie's dead. And then the next day, um, I went down to the Groucho because someone had told me, maybe it was Leanna or Mark, that old oh, people are going to gather there. And they did. So it was the next afternoon I went. Everyone came. 
and lots of the old school people and the the musicians that were there in the 90s when it was famous for that era like so many people came the day after it had been announced that he died and sat and talked about him and got drunk and whatever else but it was fascinating i mean it was it was just fascinating one to sort of go to the ground show the day after he's died and uh, everyone's attitude was one of sort of sadness and amusement and of course we were trying to piece together well what happened why did he do this did he kill himself was it the fact that he lost his job here and of course when someone takes their life the reasons for them doing it are so complex we're not going to have an answer we're not really going to find an exact answer i know some members were angry uh, because he'd lost his job there and killed himself but that afternoon it wasn't like that and it became quite celebratory that quickly it was almost exactly like a night at the ground show from many many years ago that happened spontaneously the day after he died with all of the people that had made that with what well, with so many of the people of the members that had made it what it was and had been so many times and spent so much time there just gathered um spontaneously and got drunk and talked about him and it was honestly even though it was the next day it was really positive and special and i remember looking at the sort of for want of a better phrase the sort of caliber of the people there and some of them hadn't been for quite a while um but came then and you just thought yeah this is also unique you know there are, there's lots of things that are unique about bernie but this spontaneous gathering the next day of all these very big influential people in the creative industries just obviously like took time off work and just went there just went which had to be there was really interesting and was you know kind of a literal and a figure figurative tribute to uh, to him as well Bernie was everyone's friend which explains the massive traffic blocking turnout at his funeral yet in the end he died on his own and even now, no one quite knows why. Unfortunately, Bernie's payoff when he left the club, large though it was, was not large enough. It had almost no effect on his colossal debts. He had lived a chaotic life, spending money freely. Financial troubles had always dogged him, in spite of what had become a comfortable salary. His friends, with some noble exceptions, had proved remarkably tight-lipped about all of this. Other valuable assets, which could have provided financial security for life, had simply disappeared. I was told that over the years, he pawned the artworks that he had received from the YBAs. This collection alone would have raised hundreds of thousands of pounds. But where did the money go? He was often tapping up friends and colleagues for loans, many of which he never repaid. Without his Groucho salary, Bernie was struggling even more. The TV and radio career never materialised and he was left to find odd jobs at less blue-chip venues. There was the Union Club in Soho and a former public lavatory turned nightclub in Kentish Town. His debts, meanwhile, were increasing. Richie Foster Thorne, now a recruitment consultant, was among those who lent him money after he'd left the Grouch Show. And he always said to me at the end of the night, you know, it's all, it's all glamour and everything the rest, but at the end of it, I remember going back to his for a cup of tea. Just, you know, drinking, you know, only booze, drinking yeah, tea, sitting yeah. around at four o'clock in the morning, just chatting, nice. It was interesting, but you could see, and always, whenever I leave, he'd grab me by the hand, pull me really close and say a little bit too loudly, so your ear buzzes a bit, oh, fucking thanks for coming, yeah, it means a lot to me, you know that, you know that, Richard. Right, yeah, and I said, yeah. Bernie, it's fine, of course I'll be there. It was like a 
and Noel Fielding seen them, it's like seeing them as a unicorn. You see him outside of the Groucho in an environment that doesn't, it doesn't suit him. It, doesn't, yeah. it was very odd to see him in that as backdrop. He just didn't mm. quite work. And I think from there, and then with all of the other things that were going on, which we won't go into, I think it was just a very difficult position for him. Yeah. Everybody yeah. lent him money, I lent him money. And yeah. Damon said to me once, he said, what were you talking to Bernie about? Was it? I said, um, I was just having a ch uh, chat about a couple of things. He went, the fuck off, I know you better than that. He said, how much did you give him? I said, just a couple hundred quid. Mm -hmm. And he goes, all right, okay, fair enough. I said, will I get that money back? And he went, no, never. He'd always mean to give it back to you. Yeah. He'd never see that again. Yeah, but really? he doesn't mean not no. to. He would always mean to. More than three years after his death, Bernie's mum, Rhoda, and his three sisters still think the world of Bernie. Rhoda is a typical Jewish mother. Now in her late 70s, she still serves chicken soup at her immaculately kept bungalow in Kent. Bernie still has a literal presence in the room. His ashes lie in a marble urn in the fireplace, adorned by one of many portraits. Mrs. Katz is charm personified, a neat, well-turned-out woman who recalled a mischievous young lad who was the scourge of his three elder sisters. She told me he was naughty, very naughty, always trying to make some sort of trouble. But, she told me, he was never malicious. He was adorable. Bernie left school at 16 and started work in his uncle's ticket agency. His mum told me that he was knowledgeable, whatever that means, but he hated school. He wanted to leave the classroom as quickly as possible. Mrs Katz talks of her son, whom she always called Bernard, with immense pride and a lingering sadness that becomes more obvious when the Groucho is mentioned. When I was born, she called me Bernard, so she could call me Bernie, and no one ever has until I became, like, over ten, and then everyone called me Bernie, but she still calls me Bernard, and it's horrible. It's like a librarian's name. I mean, I don't like a Bernard. Bernard. Except for when I'm, like, 40... Eight. I think I only come Bernard, which Bernard. is much nicer than Bernard. Bernard. <laughs> Bernard, much nicer than Bernard. Bernard, because I think Bernie is like it's a, a young-sounding person's name, but it kind of suits me for skipping about in Soho. But when I like grow up, I'm going to become Bernard. <laughs> so there we are. I was told by a close friend of his that Bernie had pawned the paintings the YBAs had given him long ago. Another source suggested his debts ran into many tens of thousands. Therein lay Bernie's undoing. We'll probably never know exactly what happened in the last few months of Bernie's life. He was clearly struggling on many levels. And soon after he had left the club, a desperate Bernie rang television producer Damon Bryant, an old friend. Bryant would later organise the funeral and lead the cortege. There were lots of characters. I mean, the truth is, I mean, I'll talk candidly. Yeah. I mean, mate, my wife laughed hysterically. I get a call from Bernie and he is in 20. He said it was about 9,000 pounds, but he got into 20,000 pounds of the debt with the Albanian gangsters in Soho. What were the Albanians were they threatening to kill him? Oh, yeah, no, they wanted to take him off the street. I literally, my wife looked at me when I left home wearing a pair of Canary Yellow Brooks Brothers trousers. She's going, are you really going to do it? Of Bernie and Gangsters, and they were, yeah. We sat outside here, and I'd set up a meeting. I said, Bernie, just organise to meet them yeah. here. Don't tell them anyone's coming. Right, yeah. Fortunately, I know the Albanians who run the door at Sunset Strip, who yeah. are bigger Albanians than them. Right, yeah. And they said, you know, and they love Bernie too. Yeah. They properly love Bernie. And essentially, it was like, we're going to settle this debt. 
we're only going to pay you eight grand, not the 20, because you keep putting yeah. interest on it. So we managed to get that debt paid. Yeah. And me, as I said, a bunch of us all collected for yeah. him. And, yeah. and myself, Jude Law, Sean Pertwee, Brad Adams, who was a dear friend of his, who's a great yeah. friend of mine. Paul Rowey put yeah. money in. Yeah. There was a whole load of us put money in just to clear that mm. debt. There was never any suggestion that Law, Adams, Pertwee, Rowey, all the rest, knew where the money was going to. But it seems sadly not to have been enough. And there's no knowing what the Albanians really felt. My name is Bradley Adams, Brad Adams. I'm a film producer. I remember the last time I saw him. I mean, we'd all been giving various money over the, over the years to him to try and sort off this mis- phase off this kind of supposed loan, which was, I'm sure it was a very real loan, but it never seemed to diminish. And then it was Damon Bryant who kind of found out that it was a kind of compound interest loan, so it was never going to go away and it kept putting him under pressure. But the last time I saw him was when actually I was driving up Kentish Town High Street and he was running along and I beeped my horn and, you know, he kind of came running over and I said, you're right, and he was in a terrible panic. He said, I need money, I need money, I'll be money, they're after me. Um, so you know, I jumped out, went to a cash point and got out what I could, gave it to him and he just gave me a kiss and jumped out and just ran off, but he was in a terrible state. And that was about 10 days before he, before he did it. The police did not appear to investigate Bernie's death, even though the coroner had recorded an open verdict. There was no evidence to suggest foul play. But if the rumours are true, and Bernie had got on the wrong side of an Albanian gang, the chances are he would have been made to feel extremely uncomfortable. There were rumours flying around that the Albanians had threatened to make an appearance at the Groucho and start smashing the place up. Inevitably, this would have put the fear of God into poor Bernie, who beneath all the hissy fits, all the campery, genuinely cared about all of his members. According to the National Crime Agency, the cocaine industry in the UK is worth between 9.4 and 11.8 billion. Most of the trade in London. The business is dominated by Albanians, with many of the gangs led by veterans of the Balkan Wars in the 90s. One Albanian gangster, Olsi Bejaluli, was jailed for 11 years in 2015 after more than £4 million worth of cocaine and heroin was seized from his HQ in North London. And in the last year alone, five Albanians caught up in gang wars over drugs have been murdered on the streets of the capital. Last summer saw an escalation in hostilities, open warfare even, as the rival groups fought over their territories. In one attack in June, two men were shot in broad daylight as they drove through Barking in East London. The area has long been a stronghold of the Helbanians, a notorious Albanian crime group known for running drugs and trafficking children to act as drug mules. The police identified a 20-year-old Albanian as the target of the assassination attempt. The turf wars are always based around the battle to control the cocaine supply, which might explain why Bernie may have fallen foul of the Albanians and become so scared. Exactly how he ended up owing the money, we will never know, since the police have no record of any complaints about intimidation. Bernie, a 
apart from telling a handful of close friends about the pressure he was under, chose to keep his misery to himself. Perhaps he had his own reasons for doing so. Even now, three years after Bernie's death, the Albanians are still at the forefront of the cocaine trade in this country, which is worth billions. Bernie's debts, if they were debts occurred in this way, amounted to no more than cash down the back of the sofa. The drug trade in Soho, where Bernie of course worked, was for many years dominated by Italians and Maltese gangsters. But sometime in the last decade, as writer and journalist Ben Judah pointed out in his brilliant book, This is London, the Albanians soon squeezed them out. They were frighteningly ruthless, violent and brooked no dissent. Bernard Clifford Katz, easygoing and sweet-natured, would not have stood a chance. Here's Ben. Almost as soon as I started writing my book, This is London, I became fascinated about stories of Albanian gangs in London. And I felt that this had been sort of left out of the great story of London and ignored over the last uh, decade or so. So I began trying as hard as I could to hunt out as many stories as I could get my hands on about what had happened in Soho. You know, so the story begins like this, really. You know, the Balkan Wars brought at least 30,000 people from Kosovo and Albania to London. And amongst those refugees, it brought a couple of hundred gangsters, you know, hardened KI veterans and kind of sworn brothers from the criminal clans of the Albanian South. The stories that I found um, went like this. You know, when they first arrived in London, they found work as bouncers. And at the time, the brothels of Soho were run by a very old established mafia, by the Maltese, who'd been there for, for decades. These hardened Albanian mafiosi guys, you know, who'd lived through the collapse of communism, the chaos in Albania, some of them through the war in Kosovo, who had, uh, I remember one of my sources joking, done their PhDs in mafia in uh Italy really disdained this sort of weak old uh, Maltese mafia. They viewed them as, uh, you know, sort of degenerates that had long since lost their touch for real crime. And so the story goes, you know, one night, you know, warm in their leather jackets, smoking cigarettes at four in the morning, they hatched a plan on Greek Street to conquer Soho. The Soho that they were trying to conquer, it was the last gasps of that old Soho of sort of Lucy and Freud knocking back uh, double whiskies in the colony club. All it took was for uh, a, a gun to be drawn at um, one of these so-called uh, mafiosi and sort of quivering and pathetic, they agreed to, to sell up. You know, there was, they put up very, very little fight. Like they knew what they were up against and uh, they knew that their time had gone from being at the top of the mafia chain in central London. But the question still stands. Why did the police allow a brand new criminal force to just move into Soho? Well, one thing that I was uh, told by the uh, police, you know, not just in uh, the UK, but also in kind of France that have been... Uh, looking into this, is that the fact that Albanians speak this unique language, which is incredibly hard to learn, isn't related to the Slavic language families of Eastern Europe or the Romance languages, which you know you can easily pick up one between 
the other means that there are just very few people that can that can really know them, that really have the linguistic skills to get inside them and to study them, and that it gives them, you know, an element of um, inscrutability to law enforcement. You know, trying to go through a pack of uh, Albanian uh, recordings is a much taller order than it is to go through ones in Polish, Russian, or Italian. You know, where, what happened to to Bernie? I don't, I don't actually know, but there was definitely a pattern of intimidation going on at the time. But how did the Albanians get the capital in the first place? Building an army isn't exactly cheap. Well, this was one of the great wheezes of uh, Albanian crime in London. Almost as soon as uh, they arrived, you know, they noticed that parking in uh, London was a veritable gold mine with uh, not just hundreds, but hundreds and thousands of one pound and two pound coins being uh, deposited in little parking meters all around town. And at first there were attempts to kind of crack them open, work out how they worked, you know, some of them were even beheaded until finally they worked out that the real way to become a harvester of the uh, parking meters was to bribe the traffic wardens out of their uniforms and those all crucial keys to get to work harvesting became quite a big thing actually in Albanian uh, crime in London around 2005, 2006 with various gangs divvying up parts of the West End and the rest of London uh, between themselves. The number of Albanians in British jails has quadrupled from 212 in 2013 to nearly a 1,000 in March last year. This figure accounts for 10% of all foreign nationals in prison. The vast majority are serving time for drug offences, mainly supply. How did this come about? I asked Doubt Doughty, an Albanian journalist and historian based in London. Albanian gangsters started dealing with prostitution and the, before the drugs they dealt with the prostitution in Soho and they replaced the other other mafia and they became in, in a short time bosses uh, by uh, they did it by bringing new girls from Eastern Europe by bringing uh, and lowering the price so what they did they immediately jumped into another uh, uh, criminal activity which was uh, more profitable and, and uh, you know fast-making money thing and uh, they went into drugs and they applied the same procedure they brought better drugs and lowered the price the way that the Albanians uh, operate is very very uh, peculiar because they they did not operate like any other mafia in Europe so they Basically, in, in, in everything, what they do is just eliminate the middleman. Other mafias before, they bought girls from other people. And uh, in case of drugs, they, brought, they bought drugs from Colombians uh, or from someone else in Europe, and they transported here. But in both cases, Albanians have established direct link with Eastern Europe and with Colombia. So they, they themselves go to Colombia and themselves, you know, try uh, to, to control the, the route that the drugs, drugs entered Britain. And then they themselves distribute it. This may not seem relevant to Bernie's story and its squalid ending, but it may have some connection. 
There were just so many ifs and buts in Bernie's story. If the Albanians had stayed out of Soho, just at the time Bernie was working there, he might not have succumbed to temptation. If he'd been completely straightforward at the Groucho, he might have kept his job. If he'd have kept his nose clean, he might still be welcoming guests into reception and charging across the room in his heels. Towards the end of that last summer, after he left the Groucho, Bernie's friends said that he had seemed in a state of chaos. There's no evidence that Bernie was dealing in drugs, but plenty of rumour. Many of his friends and colleagues also confirmed to me that he had been supplying members. They might, of course, have been making this up, but why? It's clear that drug use was not, of course, sanctioned or tolerated in any way at any time by the club or its management. Damon Bryant told me that towards the end of his life, Bernie had found some happiness with a Spanish boyfriend based in Barcelona. I mean, the truth is Diego, his last boyfriend, wanted to be a photographer and Bernie put him through photography school. And essentially a month before Bernie killed himself, Diego ran away. So that was one of the elements that took him to that space of undone. His debt had become unmanageable. We'd all helped out as much as we could. His debt had become unmanageable. He had the pressure of all his family's rent. He'd, you know, if rumours are true, some of the art had gone missing from Groucho that he'd pawned. He'd pawned all of his art that he'd got from varying artists. The truth is, a beautiful friend of mine, Alan MacDonald, who also suffered with big mental health issues, who Bernie knew very well. And Alan was successful. I mean, he did every film that Stephen Frears did as a production designer. Mm. Alan was rich. Alan had a beautiful flat in Covent Garden. He had everything going for him. But he killed himself on Monday. Mm. Bernie found out about that. And I truly believe that Bernie thought, if Alan can, I can. I'm done. Bernie lived three times as long as everyone else. Diego going, the pressure of family, rent, rates. His mother, Rhoda, told me that Bernie's favourite film was the Frank Capra movie, Lost Horizon, a Hollywood fantasy released in 1937. She told me she remembers him saying to one of his sisters, I wish I could go to a Lost Horizon. His mum told me that he just didn't want to be here anymore. Months ago, I set out on this journey, a journey to find out what happened to Bernie Katz, the Prince of Soho. He was the darling of the West End, the little man at the Grouch Show who could get you anything you wanted. But he met a heartbreaking end in a small apartment in North London. It was a transformation that took place within just a few weeks. On the way, I met with countless stars who were close to him and knew him well, but didn't want to be recorded for the podcast. Plenty of rumour, both on record and off, about drug dealing, stolen paintings, debts and threats but nothing concrete. Bernie Katz, a man who'd been the soul of discretion for so many, had taken so much to his final resting place. It seems we'll never really know what happened in the final weeks after he left the Groucho, but this series should be seen as a tribute of sorts. A tribute to a man who gave so much to an area, a district of London that represents a unique snatch of modern culture. A tribute to a man who gave you the same attention whether you were a thirsty ex-president, a jobbing runner, or a resting actor waiting on tables. More than anything, to so many people, Bernie was a friend. 
At his funeral at Golders Green in September 2017, Jude Law read a tribute. Damon Albarn had written a poem. To the spirit of Soho, in Gollum Mulder and night, in rhinestones and green satin, your fairy dust flight. Onto scales underworld for the tailor to sew you a suit of small mirrors, reflections of you flow onto all that have loved you, so we can find you again. Sing Bernie forever, our magical friend. The mourners retired to the wake, inevitably in Soho. Their magical friend had never done anything by halves. There are actually two wakes, an official one at the Groucho itself, and another rival event at Quo Vardis, a little further down the road in Dean Street. Both were highly emotional affairs, well lubricated with industrial quantities of alcohol served long into the night. Bernie would have adored both occasions. Everyone was talking about him. And he was no longer merely front of house, ushering in the rich and glamorous. He was for once at the very centre of the proceedings. He was a star who'd fallen. Our cover art features photography from Andy Fallon, and he can be found at andyfallon.co.uk. Many thanks to Soho Radio, 5 by 15 and all our contributors. Bernie, who killed the Prince of Soho, is a stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network.